John chapter 15. We talked about this briefly last week. I need for this to register. I need for this to sink in. This isn't unique to me. I was taught this, but I, I would repeat this fervently anytime I have an opportunity. That God is a God of revelation. God is a God who wants us to see what has always been there, but has been under a cover. That's the word for revelation. It's not like a vision. It's not like a dream. Revelation is an uncovering of something that has always been there. So in Paul's prayer, in Ephesians chapter 1, that we would be a people who would have wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's saying, by the necessity of a church, by the necessity of Christian people, that we be people of revelation so that we can see what was always there, but God unfolds it or uncovers it. And the reason he does it is that every revelation becomes an invitation to have an encounter with him. Revelation isn't about learning more. Revelation isn't about, uh, isn't about developing more concepts about God. Revelation, why God would uncover it, is to create an opportunity so that you would have an in- encounter with him so that that which you have now learned, you have now experienced, so the truth of it sets in you and becomes a part of who you are. As Christians, we are kind of notorious for holding God at a concept level and never allowing those concepts to be manifest within our lives, so that now we have an experience that matches the truth that we just learned so that it becomes real. It does what it was designed to do. Every revelation is designed to create a moment of an encounter with God so that by that encounter, we experience Him. We shared in the Bible study last night that one of the most tragic things that happened within a Christian's life, and Shorty talked about it this morning, all of us have had one encounter with God. If you're sitting here and you're saved, you've had an encounter with God. Sadly, for most, that's the only encounter that we can ever testify of. Yes, we might have learned a lot, But God's love for us, his plan for us, is that these encounters would create experience so that we would not only know of him, but we would know him, intimately know him. The last two verses of chapter 15. But when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me, and he shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." This is the part I want to get fixed in your head as much as I can. Is that if I write the word God right here in the center of a piece of paper, most of us have developed an understanding of God by taking a man, all the characteristics, all the qualities, all the things that we as humans have, we start with that concept and we reason up a better version of man to establish who God is. What happens in that process is that we give God human qualities. Because man down here is variable. I can please him. I can displease him. I can see goodness and I can see evil and I can see blessing and I can see cursing. So we recognize that man on this scale is very variable. So if I reason from there up to understand God, what am I fixing to do to God? I'm going to make him variable. That I can move him up and down this scale based on me. What a strange concept. Again, I'm going to flip to another piece of paper and draw another diagram so you get this one ready. I'm just drawing two scales like you would use to adjust volume on a stereo, the the sliding knobs that you would adjust the sound on a stereo. You can always tell between two people who has power and who, who doesn't 
Because the one who doesn't will always be reacting to the one who does. My example is always the same. You, you take four little girls walking down the hallway in junior high, and you can tell which one of them has power because the other three are going to be kind of whirling and swirling around her, trying to react and constantly reacting to the one who has the power. You can always tell who has power and who doesn't because the one that doesn't will be the one reacting. If I think for a second that I can move God up and down this scale based on what I do, what's God doing to me? He's reacting to me, which gives me power. But a strange concept, that God is reacting to me. Why is it so necessary to understand this? Because if we don't understand what he just said in those last two verses, that the spirit of truth is going to come, and he is going to bear witness of me, I cannot start with man and reason up and understand God. I have to pursue the Holy Spirit and let him reveal down the truth about God. Then I can know the God I'm supposed to know. Then I can understand the heart of that God, the nature of that God, the goodness of that God, the blessing of that God, and I can understand that I cannot move him on this scale. I can't go out today with dedication in my heart and resolve in my mind and say, today I'm going to be the best Christian I can be so that at the end of the day, God will be pleased with me. There's nothing we can do, absolutely nothing we can do that would make God love us more. And on the other side, there's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us less. Why? Conceptually, why? Because his love isn't born in me. His love is born in him. His love that that he's demonstrating, that he shows us. How feeble that love would be if I could change that love simply by something I said or did. His love for me is born in his heart. Fixed in, in his nature. And I'm so glad that when we begin to understand God and how he reveals himself to us. Instead of man reasoning up, which creates a very, very small God. Jay taught us recently, it's easy to disobey a small God. It's easy when our concept of God is small to ignore him, or to pay very little mind or attention to a small God. But when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal God to us, I guarantee you there is nothing small about God in that revelation. He will grow and he will get bigger and bigger and bigger until we realize, as Jay said, we find ourselves standing in a hand and we can't even measure the perimeter of the hand that we're standing in. And we look into this face and and the breadth of the face is so large that we can't see across the breadth of God's face. We realize I'm standing in the hand of a God who is that enormous. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't fear the Lord because he's small in most of our minds because we started with a man and reasoned up instead of letting the Holy Spirit tell us, let me tell you about the God who's holding you in his hand, who loves you. I tell you, conceptually, we have to get that because the world out there needs to know a big God because their problems are big, the challenges are big, the questions are big. And if we keep by our lives demonstrating this small God that we can control, the sad commentary of most churches is that we have created churches in our image. They look just like us. They reflect our desires, our wishes, our preferences. Most have very little to do with God. And you've heard me say, just quoting Amanda, religion always says this is the way we do it. If you want to do it the way we do it, if you want to sing the way we sing, if you want to praise the way we praise, if you want to study the way we study, come and join us. We'd love to have you. Religion will always say to the world, This is the way we do it. If you want to do it this way, come on. 
relationship with God always says, God, have your way. Just have your way. Do what you want. Use these hands. Use this heart. Use these feet to go with. Use this mouth to speak with. Just have your way. That's what relationship does. And God's calling us to relationship. The spirit of religion has reigned long enough. He's calling us to relationship. So here we start, chapter 16. Jesus is having this very, very intimate conversation with his disciples. His public words have stopped prior to this. He's just a few days now away from the crucifixion. He's having a very intimate and personal conversation. You notice at the beginning of when we started this in, in John chapter 14, the disciples were asking him questions. The longer he talked, the more quiet they became. They haven't asked him much in a while. He's just talking. Verse 1, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. He says, I want these things to be so fixed in you that when somebody says something to you, when someone brings something that is in contrast or in conflict to you, around you, that you won't be offended by it. The only way to do that is to be certain about where we stand in our personal relationship with God. Not what we know or not what we think or what we feel, because those can always be moved. But when I know who I am in relationship to my Father, it's the same reason when they came to Jesus and they said, you know, you're the prince of devils, and Jesus didn't rear back and say, man, that hurt my feelings. Why not? Why didn't it offend him? Because he knew who he was. He said, that sounds very strange in my head because my Father calls me the prince of peace. He knew who he was. It wasn't about what he knew. It was about a reality of who he was. The more certain we become of who we are in relationship to him, the less we will be offended. Understand now why we need for God to be revealed to us? Because if man, being variable, says something to us, he can offend us. But Jesus is saying, I want you to know this stuff because the stuff is fixing to come against you. As disciples, the things that you're fixing to experience, you can be very easily offended. He said, I'm telling you these things so that you won't be offended. And then he, he launches into it. He says, they shall put you out of the synagogue. You'll be asked to leave because, because your beliefs, what you're going to stand and teach, is going to be in such direct conflict with what they have believed and taught for so many years. It's going to stand in such conflict, they're going to ask you to step out of the synagogue. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. I can tell you he was amazingly, profoundly correct when you study what happened to the disciples over the course of the next several years. You get this kind of this early shadow of Paul who was out persecuting Christians in the name of God, thinking he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And Jesus is warning them. He's saying, these days are going to come. Well, I want to tell you, uh, I don't think the news has changed. This is very relevant to who we are today. I don't know that that day will come for us sitting here in sundown Texas, but it's coming to Christians all over the world already. It's all being done in the name of God. Verse 3, and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Isn't it kind of strange? It says in verse 2 that they're going to think they're doing God's service. So what does that mean? It means they have an intellectual understanding of God. They know the rules, they know the regulations. Here he's probably actually referring to, they know the Torah and they know the Talmud. They know what those things say. So they're moving under the authority that those things provide, but those things that they know that don't at all allow them to know me. 
They intellectually comprehend, but they don't know me. They've never met my father, and they've never met me. How strange a conviction that that creates, a strange picture that we can have, after over so many years, know so much about God and never have met him, never encountered him. I think it is probably one of those things that should be the most alarming to us as we look across the Christian world today, how much is known about God and how few people have actually met him, encountered him, talked to him on a daily basis, hear from him, and have the relationship that God had intended for us to have. Verse 4, but these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. He's saying, I taught you these things as we go, because you're going to need them. You're going to need to comprehend, understand, and hang on to these things that have been revealed to you, because this is what's going to stabilize you when things begin to shake. I think it's in Romans. I've, I, I, I haven't looked this up in a while, but the scripture says that God says, I will shake everything I created. If I created it, I'll shake it. So we watch the world shake. We watch the economy shake. We watch lives shake. We watch the shaking going on among all the things that God created. Why did he say that he would shake them? To make sure that we learn to trust an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's diligent about that today. He wants us to trust in a kingdom that can't be shaken, not one that's based on us. You know, Jay gave the illustration a couple of years ago, probably now, that you can go to England and you can find a place in England. When you walk through a gate, you'll look up and you'll see an American flag flying. Everything that happens within that fence is 100% under American law. The rules of America apply in the U.S. Embassy in whatever nation you happen to be in. Even though you're sitting right in, in the middle of Great Britain, you're in a place under whose sovereignty is, is the United States. We live on this world, but I live within a kingdom under whose sovereignty a different banner flies, and I'm under that rule. Yes, I, I'm obligated to deal with the, the laws of England, but I am governed within this place, within this kingdom, within this fence, I'm governed by the laws of the United States. For you and I as believers, we're, we, we live on this earth, and we've got to encounter this earth. But we live in a kingdom so uniquely different that the sovereignty, the banner over which, under which we, we stand, tells us that we're under the laws of heaven. We're under the laws and the provision of a land that doesn't look anything like the earth. We move in terms that the earth will never understand. The world will never understand us. They're going to be critical of us. They're going to come against us because they will never comprehend the reality of a supernatural kingdom. Isn't it odd for us that throughout the Old Testament, God demonstrated his nature toward his people by acts that were truly supernatural? I mean, we watch the stories as they move through, you know, leaving Egypt through the wilderness, and we watch these miracles, these manifestations of God's nature toward his people. We come into the New Testament, and here's Jesus demonstrating the nature of God, who, who, who by His nature is supernatural. And somehow within our calculation at the end of Acts, we said, well, all that is over now. So did God's nature change? 
Is he no longer a supernatural God whose manifestation is supernatural? How did he say, I'm going to separate myself from the world? How are people going to recognize me? How are they going to know it's me and not just the world? He said, I am going to be the God by the nature that I am that will produce the reality of the supernatural so that people can distinctly know that I'm God. And that message has never changed. Unless his nature changed, if he's going to do something, it's going to be supernatural. If it's his nature who's producing those things within our world today, the evidence of God is always going to remain supernatural. And we removed it. Again, nobody took it from us. We gave it away. Verse 5, But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? There's some things in this next few verses that are so deeply profound, I don't, I'm not sure I can do an adequate job of teaching them. I'm going to share what God has shared with me. This is an unusual phrase. Jesus is saying, I'm going away, and I've kind of been talking about this, and you guys sitting here in front of me, not a single one of you asked me where I'm going. There wasn't even a mild curiosity as, as to where I'm going. You know, the great danger within our lives in relationship with God is not what we know, it's the questions that we fail to ask. We don't ask them because we feel like we've got God figured out. I shared this with somebody at Bible study last night. They asked me who I study, who I read. And I said, you would be shocked at how little I do. I said, because what I know, I the questions form in me, and I put them before God and I have to wait. Because when I speak the answer, I want to be able to say, as Paul said, I wasn't taught this. This wasn't something I learned. This was something that was revealed to me. I want to be able to answer with such conviction that it wasn't something that I picked up and read. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it just said, I mean, this is stuff we lock away. If I'm going to know truth, who brought it to me? The Spirit of truth. He has to reveal it. So I am in a, a headlong pursuit after the Holy Spirit, so that he can reveal the truth to the questions that just baffle me. So, so many of the things I share, I, somebody asked me, where did you get that? Somebody asked me the other day about our deliverance ministry and said, where can I read about this? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a thing to hand you. And he said, why not? And I said, because not a single piece of this was born out of something that was read. This was all by, things, by the things that God has done. And he said, that's fascinating. He said, the way this is done, I thought there would have been writings about it. He said, there's nothing out there. Because not a single thing was born out of something that was read. Verse 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. You became sad with no inquiry. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Again, these are the moments within these scriptures I wonder how in the world we ever remove the Holy Spirit from the story. He's saying, if I don't go away, him now being the only person on the face of the earth who had the Spirit dwelling in him. You remember when Jesus was baptized, what happened to him? This is why there's such interest and fascination with baptism. At his baptism, what happened? His father adopted him. All of heaven opened to him, so now he's ministering under an open heaven. It said the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and it remained on him. Because even Jesus required the Holy Spirit to minister for the next three and a half years. He realized, I can't do it without the Holy Spirit. So for the next three and a half years, it was the Holy Spirit that connected Jesus the man with God the Father. By his Spirit, the connection was formed. 
Why would we imagine ourselves to be any different? When Jesus is articulating so well, I'm going away because when I go away, that spirit that has now rested solely in me, because you're still disqualified because the compartment that has got spirit on it, that spirit part of me is still under the condemnation of sin because my blood has not been shed yet. But the minute that my blood is shed for you and you accept that, that compartment called the spirit is washed clean by the blood of Jesus, then that spirit that lives in me can come live in you and fill that void. And now I'm not only saved, but I'm equipped to live the life that's yet to come. Not just fit to go back to heaven because of the blood of Jesus, but because of the life of Jesus who's come to live in me. Now God can come out of heaven and live back in man, which was the plan in the first place. The plan was never, the gospel message was never to get us off this earth from under the weight of sin and back to heaven. That's not the good news. The good news was that God could leave heaven and come back and indwell man as God had intended from the beginning. Because now the compartment called spirit had been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And it wasn't just washed clean to sit there. If you needed a drink and I handed you a cup and it was dirty in the bottom, what would you do? Naturally, wash the cup. But just because it was washed is not going to quench your thirst. Why not? Because once clean, it had to be filled so that it could accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. Our gospel message has been about cleaning the cup. But the cup was only clean so that by the power of God, Jesus, in the form of the Holy Spirit, could come live in us to equip us for the power that he wanted to demonstrate, the authority he wanted to show, and the life he wanted to live through us so the world could see what God is like, how God behaves, how God loves, how God moves, how God heals and blesses and restores. Verse 8, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Very critical to understand the word reprove. It means to convict, but it also means to convince. One's kind of the negative side, one the positive side. He says he'll come to convict, he'll also come to convince. So he says he's going to come to convict of sin because they believe not on me. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father. Now please, that's not my righteousness he's talking about. That's his righteousness. For everyone who wondered who Jesus was, he's saying in his comment, they're going to see the righteousness because only by the righteousness am I going to return to my Father. If I wasn't righteous, I couldn't go. But when they see me leave, they're going to know I'm righteous. I'm going to convince the world that, that I am who I am by the righteousness that I've claimed simply because I'm going to my Father. It's not talking about our righteousness. It's talking about his new group of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. Again, this is one of those changes in your brain. Most of us have been taught, because we started with man, reasoned up to God, we have been taught that God is our judge, that God judges us. Absolutely not true. Again, I would ask for the evidential proof. Why does God not judge us? If we had a judge sitting here tonight, I would ask him, what's your two responsibilities in a courtroom? At the end of the day, what are the two objectives that are trying to be accomplished in your courtroom? One is the verdict. Well, guess what? The verdict has already come. What does it sound like? Guilty. I all have sinned. Verdict passed down. What else is the judge responsible for? Punishment. What's the punishment? The wage of sin is death. We don't need a judge anymore. Everything that a judge could do has been accomplished. We need a savior. Now, there will be a, a day when there will be, he will set as an accountant a day of reckoning for us based on what we've done with the life that he's giving us. That day of reckoning will come. 
But he says it, he's saying it right here. My role as judge is to do one thing. I am going to judge the one who deserves to be judged. It's not you, it is Satan. He said, I will judge the prince of this world. And that day will come. If you want to read about it, read at the end of Revelation. That day of judgment will come. And death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Conceptually, there's so many things I wish I could just stop and teach right there. I won't take the time. It's not the time and the place. But he's saying, I will judge. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. But how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come. He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. Now that word of, he's not going to say he's not going to talk about himself. That's not what it says. That word of is the word from. He will not speak from himself. Just as Jesus said, I can only say what I hear my father say. I can only do what I see my father do. Jesus is saying the things that you see and the things you hear, they're not originating in me. They're coming from somebody else. So it's saying here, the things that you're going to hear the Spirit say, they're not going to originate from the Spirit. They're going to come from Him. There's a different origin of those things that will be said. For He shall not speak from Himself. But whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. I have a lot of people, when we mention prophecy, immediately it rings this bell, prophecy. You believe in prophecy? How in the world can I remove prophecy under that truth, that the Holy Spirit will teach us what's coming. What happened when we removed prophecy as teaching? Prophecy's practical reality is it forces us to just recreate church right here where we live. So we recreate it. We try to sing differently. We preach differently. We, re- we change the format. We have contemporary. We have traditional. We keep trying to reinvent church right here because there's no prophetic picture that moves us on moves us forward, that establishes something in front of us beyond what we currently know. So we're left to just do this. Keep recreating, recreating church, doing it differently, trying something new, trying to remarket it, trying to sell it differently. Because all we can do is improve it because there's nothing in front of us. And God says the Holy Spirit will show us those things to come. It's not fortune telling. It's giving us a picture of a reality that's in front of us that can become bigger you know, we, we go back to that story. Who, you know, Samuel knew, that before Saul ever knew, that he was going to be king. God allowed a prophet, a seer, according to the Old Testament, to see a truth out ahead of them so that by that prophecy, the mechanism could be in, put in place by which that truth could now occur. But that truth of Saul becoming king, long before Saul knew it, was more true than anything that was going on in Saul's life. He just didn't know it yet. And Jesus said it as clearly as it can be said. He will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father have are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. He's saying everything that the Father has is mine. And I'm not going to hold anything back from you. Everything I have, I'm going to give it to you. I'm holding nothing back. And we live like spiritual paupers, having so little access, so little power, so little capacity within ourselves. And God's saying, that wasn't because of me. I held nothing back. I've opened heaven. I even gave you the reality of me to live in you so that you'd never have any lack. There would never be a thing that you would want or desire that couldn't be found in the provision that I've already given you. And we live meagerly. 
rarely functioning fully in the reality that, that this has just been spoken and held absolutely true, that all the things that the Father have are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. He held nothing back. I'll end with this illustration in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 24 or 25, when Abraham sends this unnamed servant to find a bride for his only begotten son, whose name was Isaac. You begin to get a picture of a father who sent an unnamed servant to find a bride for the only begotten son. Pretty clear illustration. As the father, he sent with him ten camels. Ten is the ordinal number for completion. Everything that can be counted when the number ten is used, means it basically says, I sent everything. I sent all that I had. Because I want that bride for my only begotten to know that I held nothing back. What I want to give her that will establish her in this relationship with my son, I'm holding nothing back. What an amazing picture. I love that story because then when the servant brings her back and she says, who's that guy out there in the field? And the servant says, that's Isaac. That moment when the bride sees the bridegroom, my heart, my mind can't even imagine what that day is going to be like when the bride of Christ meets the bridegroom. It's going to be quite a day. But today, he's saying, I want you to have everything. I'm holding nothing back. I want you to live under the full provision of the relationship because I want you to experience life now while you're waiting to meet the bridegroom. I don't want you to lack for anything. I want to give you the full provision. Powerful picture. We'll stop right there and pick up in, in, the, in, in the, the latter part of John chapter 16 next week. Lord, we just thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can study together, open your word, and let you speak. Just the reality of these scriptures, the truth of what you're trying to establish. Let us find within our spirit the willingness to receive so that it's not something we learn. It's revelation that we take in that creates an encounter with you that makes that truth now experientially true. So that it's something that we know not in our mind but in our heart. And we reflect it in our spirit. Let, let that be true of us as we study the scripture in Jesus' name. Amen.